Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was fortunate to have three fantastic guests. They were Avery Paxton, who's a research marine biologist with NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science, Chris Taylor, research ecologist, also with NOAA's NCOS, and Melanie Damore, who's a marine archaeologist and the Environmental Studies Coordinator with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management's Gulf of Mexico Region Office. They joined me to talk about the subject of their most recent bioscience article, which is on on shipwreck ecology and the ways in which these sites can be hotspots for biodiversity and also for research. Let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us, James. We're all excited to be able to share our team's findings on shipwrecks and how they form special places on the seafloor. Great. And so why don't we go ahead and get started with the first question about um, shipwrecks and their ecology. So, you know, first of all, what types of shipwrecks are we mostly talking about in this article? Hi, this is Melanie. I can tackle that one as the marine archaeologist in the group. Um, typically, what we're looking at is historic shipwrecks from the archaeology side. And those are generally vessels that wrecked at least 50 years or more ago. Uh, but from the ecology side, we're also looking at quote unquote modern shipwrecks um, because they also play a role in marine ecology. So it's kind of a kind of a twofold, uh, depending on your perspective. If you're an archaeologist, you like the older wrecks. And if you're an ecologist, you're happy to look at the modern wrecks too. That's great. And, and by and large, is this looking at, you know, shipwrecks over sort of a global scale or did you have a sort of geographic um, constraint, you know, when you were putting together the article? This is Avery, and we were looking at shipwrecks globally. So shipwrecks are found in a variety of environments. There's estimated to be over 3 million shipwrecks worldwide. You can find them on the ocean floor. You can find them in shallow estuaries, sometimes in rivers and lakes. And we were looking at them as a collective whole in all of these different ecosystems. Now, are there any, you know, kind of patterns that emerge when you kind of think about where those wrecks are? Um, you know, I, I living in a coastal area myself, of course, I, I sort of imagine that many of them are, uh, you know, near shore where the water's shallow and ships kind of have a tendency to run aground. Yeah, this is Chris. Um, the shipwrecks that I've done research on most often have been in relatively shallow water, so uh, less than a couple of hundred meters or, or 500 feet deep. Um, and, and in this case, the shipwrecks are just uh, abundant with life. They're surrounded by uh, plankton and fish of all different sizes, large predators, uh, massive schooling, and, and large collections of biomass around these structures. Okay, great. And, you know, what exactly causes that to happen? You know, why do we expect to see, you know, more life around shipwrecks? I think it's a familiar thing for most people who've been fishing that fish like structure, but that's obviously a far too basic understanding. Why are shipwrecks places where you have a tendency to find biodiversity? Well, I think one of the things that we're finding through our research is that um, whenever you have any sort of human input into the sea, whether it's, you know, on purpose like oil and gas infrastructure or accidental in the case of a shipwreck, what we're finding is that the very first organisms on the scene to really check out that structure are microorganisms. And what they do is they attach to these surfaces and over time they grow into these uh, widely diverse communities and they form what's called a biofilm. And this biofilm on the shipwrecks provides the chemical cues for other fauna such as corals and sponges that settle on these surfaces. And over time, that attracts other fauna like fish uh, and crustaceans and, and other organisms. And they essentially create their own small little ecosystems. And you can find this, 
you know, in, in any water body around the world. So um, shipwrecks are almost like a, like a manifest destiny for organisms. It's like, oh, wow, something new and exciting that we can attach to. So they're, they actually provide uh, important habitat over time. Very nicely said, Melanie. And one thing I want to add, this is Avery, is that, um, James, you'd asked about the height of the structure. So oftentimes shipwrecks are think sinking on existing habitat, right? So they may be sinking on a soft, sandy bottom, and that sandy bottom is going to be relatively flat. And when a shipwreck sinks, it's going to be adding vertical structure. So you can almost think of some of them as these skyscrapers of structure under the um ocean that are able to recruit all of this marine life and form these underwater cities, if you will. And it, and it surprises us sometimes how quickly this happens. So Millie, to describe the process, the sort of the ecological succession, the evolution of the community as they develop there, but these fish can arrive within a day. I mean, it, it, it's just remarkable how they are able to orient, navigate, and, and find these structures in, in what seems to be just just vast tracts of sand, you know, something that's just completely absent of other of other structural features that, but the fish that maybe come from different habitats, natural habitats, or other artificial habitats are are, are just drawn or, or navigated or as they're moving around encounter these, these features in some way that we have yet to understand. There was some very interesting research that came out of the University of Denmark over a decade ago, uh, and this individual, she was tracking North Atlantic cod in the North Sea. And one of the interesting things that she found when she looked at all of the tag locations for the fish was that they had, you know, quote unquote, favorite shipwrecks that they would return to time and again. So it's very interesting that, you know, the behavior of fish can change in such a short time scale when a new, you know, wreck reaches the seafloor. That's such a great example, Melanie. And one of the other things we found um, closer to my home off the coast of North Carolina is that large predators, so specifically sand tiger sharks, also tend to sometimes return to the same shipwreck time and time again. And so there seems to be something kind of mysterious going on here um, about how these oases for marine life are functioning. And the fish seem to have a better map of the seafloor than we do or could ever produce. Uh, when we, when, this, when this, we've seen studies of tagged fish uh, off of our coast here, and they, and they move in a very directed path from, the, from, uh, say, a natural reef or another artificial habitat to a shipwreck or another artificial reef, and it's it's just amazing how they're able to figure out their surroundings in that way using their their senses that are are completely foreign to us when we're trying to. You know, use our own phone or use our, use our own GPS to navigate even to a, a, a close friend's house and, and still get lost sometimes. Um, that, that's fantastic. So uh, is it, you know, the case that these sorts of, um, you know, shipwrecks and structures uh, create additional, you know, fish biomass? Do they improve the populations? Or is this a case in which, you know, we're simply concentrating, you know, existing numbers of species? That's a great question, James, and that's something that the scientific community is still actively discussing. There's a lot of evidence out there on this topic, and the question at hand is when you have a shipwreck that sinks, right, onto an existing natural habitat, what is happening with all of the animals that are brought there? Are those animals coming from a nearby already existing habitat and congregating or aggregating on that shipwreck? Or over time, do you have new biomass, so production of animals that is occurring on this shipwreck? And while the jury's still out, um, what it looks like is that there's likely a mix 
where some of these sites are aggregating um, animals like fish, especially when they first sink. And then over time, there may be a production value. Great. And one thing I was also curious about is the way that this type of thing is studied. So, you know, how do you get out there? Is, it, is this, you know, uh, going on ships and hopping down with scuba gear, submersibles, you know, remote craft, um, remote sensing? You know, what's, what's going on? How does this, you know, how do you kind of put together the research that appears in this article? All of the above, James. Um, as as we found over you know fifty years of studies at BOEM and empirical data from uh, geophysical surveys offshore, shipwrecks can be found anywhere in a navigable water body, and they can sink for a variety of reasons. Um, and so over time, what we're finding is that we really need to do the geophysical surveys in all of these areas to help identify shipwrecks. And once we do. Um, we can go in and do further investigations. If it's a, a shallow coastal site that's within you know, recreational scuba diving limits, then we can put divers on the site to do very detailed mapping and recording. But in water depths that are much deeper than that, we require uh, a, lot, a lot more logistics, um, such as remotely operated vehicles or autonomous underwater vehicles to go in and collect high resolution video. We can do 3D laser and sonar scanning. We can collect samples with ROVs. So there's a wide array of tools that we have at our disposal for studying these shipwrecks, regardless of their water depth. Yeah, the tools that we're using is just, it's just remarkable. So getting our eyes on these sites is the best form of, of the science and observation that we can make. It gives us the highest, the richest detail, the, 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 the high, finest resolution in the taxonomy, the descriptions of the communities from the biofilms all the way up to the, to the charismatic megafauna that, that surround these wrecks. Um, and now the technology is, is just, is just advancing so quickly for us to be able to produce, um, to put robots underwater that have basically the same vision that we have with our eyes, things that are that provide us with stereo vision to be able to give us sizes, to give us depth, to give us ranges, um, to give us the full color spectrum that we that we have to be able to identify species of organisms that are attached to these wrecks. Um, it's, and then be able to reproduce these things in a virtual environment so that we can continue to revisit these sites uh, in a three-dimensional constructed environment to be able to describe in, in higher and richer detail these communities with with people uh, across the world and, and maybe watching these things remotely through through internet and through through telepresence capabilities. And one of the things that we're really excited about is this increasing collaboration between archaeologists and biologists or ecologists. And so historically, we've often had our separate tools um, that Melanie and Chris have mentioned for how we would explore these wrecks. But we're finding now that we can use the same tool to get the best bang for our buck, right? So we can go out and use one tool to get both archeological and biological information and learn the most that we can possibly learn about these sites with our um, relatively limited time with which we're able to explore some of them because most of them are in remote and difficult to access conditions or locations. And how do you learn about the you know, the diversity of species that are present at a given wreck. Is it a situation in which you, you know, take a visual census? Do you throw a net down? Um, you know, I, I would imagine that if it's something like a, a large sand tiger shark, that's pretty, you know, makes a pretty clear case for its own presence. But, uh, you know, how do you deal with smaller bait fish and even microinvertebrates, et cetera? Avery? I can share some examples from some of our team's research off the coast of North Carolina in shallow shipwrecks that are about 130 feet or close to about 40 meters or shallower. 
And on these sites, oftentimes our goal, I'm a fish biologist, my goal is to go down and understand how fish are using these sites. And you'd think that's a pretty easy task, but when you go down to these wrecks, oftentimes there's thousands of fish. We'll see um, really intriguing sights of these small silvery bait fish um, in bait balls, so in really dense concentrations moving as one unit, um, sometimes chased by large, fast-moving jacks that are several feet long, and then you may even see large sand tiger sharks that you alluded to hovering in the midst of all of this activity. And we'll either have our divers count the fish and record the types of fish that they are so we can get good estimates of abundance and biomass and species richness and diversity. Other times we won't do it um, we won't do those counts right there. We'll be able to record the information on video or in photos, and then back in the lab, we'll be able to go through and get um, oftentimes a more accurate estimate. But um, Chris, I'm going to ping that over to you for some additional insight on some of the ways in which we can try to understand the animal communities on these sites. Yeah, thanks, Avery. Um, yeah, we like to again, get our eyes in the water and be able to make those actual counts to be able to observe the, the critters that are surrounding the shipwrecks to identify the species, to make uh, the estimates of their abundance and their sizes, their biomass, to, to understand how how different parts of the ecological web are are contributing to the to the overall ecosystem function around these shipwrecks. Um, but that, like Avery pointed out, that's very challenging. These, these schools can be quite large. Uh, I, I remember trying to go down and count the largest of, the, of these schools of fish and just Almost experiencing vertigo, not knowing which way is up because there's so many fish swimming around you, and and it's and I lose. I only can count up to ten, and so once I get past that, it's really hard to keep track of how many fish are around me. Um, instead, we try to use remote sensing tools, and so there's uh, fish finders or echo sounders now are are calibrated, and they can give us a, a pretty precise estimate of the quantity of fish that are surrounding the shipwrecks. And so, from the ship and from the surface. If the shipwreck is shallow enough, we can make those observations almost instantaneously. A ship can pass over, a survey ship can pass over the top of the shipwreck uh, and sonify the water column around the shipwreck with sonar and then make an almost instantaneous count of the size of the schools, the quantity of the schools, um, and, and sometimes the, the, it gives us an indication of the species or types of fish that are, that are in those schools. Um, that gives us a, a really good uh, sort of estimate of what's in the water column around the schools with what, that, what we're not able to do with those tools is to be able to understand the fish that are within the crevices, the nooks and crannies of the shipwrecks. And, and we're, we're still trying to overcome that with some of these remote sensing tools, but it really comes down to, again, getting eyes in the water to validate the species that we see, to attribute that to the sonar signals that we're seeing from the surface, and then to get the, the, the crevices and the, and the nooks and crannies of the wreck to identify the fish and count the fish that are using those more, more uh, microhabitats around the wreck. And we've so far been talking mainly about some of the larger mobile species that we find on these sites, like the fish. Um, but Melanie, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about some of the organisms that are living on the wreck structure. So ranging from invertebrates like coral and sponges all the way down to tiny microbial organisms. Right. So some of the research that BOEM has funded with other partners from the Naval Research Lab and the University of Southern Mississippi have really tried to tease out which microorganisms are present on these shipwrecks and how far away uh, the shipwreck's influence can be detected in the seafloor by collecting sediment samples. And one of the interesting things that we're finding is that 
the microbial communities on and immediately around the shipwrecks are, they're exhibiting far more diversity than what we're seeing in the communities that are out in, you know, just bare sediments, you know, hundreds of meters away. And so these shipwrecks are essentially like cosmopolitan cities, if you will, because there's so much diversity in, in who's there and trying to understand what it is they're doing. Um, and so we've used that information to help understand things such as oil spill impacts on what that's doing to communities. And a study that we funded after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill found that even three to four years after the spill, the microbial communities on shipwrecks that were within the spill impact area were still showing signs of communities that were dominated by oil degrading bacteria. And that was a really interesting finding. And so we're able to use shifts in community uh, population and um, variety over time to look at ecosystem recovery. So for example, as that community starts to shift back towards its pre-spill baseline conditions, that's showing us that the ecosystem, the shipwreck itself, is starting to show signs of recovery. So there's a lot of really exciting information that we are just barely beginning to understand by doing this type of research. That's interesting. Is that a case in which if you were trying to, you know, judge the state of oil spill recovery otherwise, uh, it would, would it be difficult to kind of find out, you know, which communities were dominant because if there were no shipwreck there, because, you know, you'd just simply be sampling from um, existing sediment or something like that? Right. So uh, for the study that I was referring to that BOEM funded uh, after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we selected a number of shipwrecks that we had investigated prior to the spill. So we had baseline information available. Um, we also selected a couple of shipwrecks that were outside of the spill impact area for comparison, and they served as you know, reference sites for us to understand what pre-spill conditions look like. And one of the interesting things that we found with the wrecks that were within the spill impact area um, their, their communities were still showing prevalence towards the oil degrading bacteria, even a few years after the spill. Um, and they were far less diverse than what we were seeing with the reference sites that were not impacted by the spill. So that was very important information for, for us. That sounds incredibly valuable. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, just the nature of perturbation, because typically when we talk about, you know, any large human impact on an ecosystem, uh, it is typically framed as a, a, a negative experience for the ecosystems. Um, you know, is it the case that shipwrecks are by and large a, a positive for ecosystems or uh, are there, you know, kind of harmful things that can happen to extant populations? Are we upsetting, you know, a, a perhaps less active ecosystem by replacing it with another cosmopolitan site? Uh, you know, I hope that we can kind of tease those ideas out a little bit. So my answer to that, James, is going to be pretty nuanced. Um, some of the sites that we see, some of the shipwreck sites, I would say certainly play a, an important role as part of the healthy marine ecosystem, right? Um, they're places that can often be oases for marine life, and we've talked about that a lot today. What we haven't yet talked about is that in some cases, shipwrecks can be cause risks for the natural environment. So I'll give you a case from the Line Islands, for example, where an iron ship sank on what had been a healthy coral reef. And when the iron um, then leached out of the wreck over time, it led to what's called a phase shift where the healthy reef that was once dominated by coral now became overrun with algae. 
And so that's an example of if a ship sinks in a um, particular location, it can have negative impacts. And Melanie, I know that you and your team oftentimes study other potential risks associated with shipwrecks. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, so some of the other research that BOEM has funded has included looking at um, hurricane impacts. And one of the things that we've noticed is that existing damage on some of these shipwrecks can sometimes be exacerbated by hurricanes. Um, and a lot of these World War II and more modern wrecks that are out there may still contain fuel or bunker oil that was carried as cargo. And so as these hulls degrade over time, there is the potential for some of that to leak into the surrounding environment. So that is, uh, is definitely a concern. And we work a lot with NOAA and the US Coast Guard to monitor those shipwrecks that we know about that are already leaking or may in the near future. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on um, from, the, from the federal science standpoint. Um, and another point I'd like to make in, in terms of, you know, sh using shipwrecks in, in new and exciting ways. And there's some exciting research that's been done by Daniel Distel, who's been looking at um, wood, wood falls, organic wood falls as sort of stepping stones for larval dispersal in the deep water environment. So in the deep water, there's very little hard bottom habitat available. And his research has really been focusing on, you know, organic and natural wood falls in this area. But I think a really cool way to expand that is to look at wooden-hulled shipwrecks as an additional source of potential stepping stones for larval dispersal. So I'm really hoping that that particular line of inquiry will um, generate some momentum moving forward. Yeah, and so Melody just brought up the the larval dispersal and and these these uh, shipwrecks serving as stepping stones. Well, that there could also be negative to that with with invasive species. Um, colonizing and, and then propagating as they move and use these uh, use these shipwrecks as, as connectivity corridors and, and stepping stones. But on the reverse side, on the reverse side of that, sometimes that can also be good for some of these mobile animals. So there's hypotheses out there, for example, and some evidence that shows that tropical fish that might be at the poleward edge of their range might be able to use artificial structures like shipwrecks as valuable habitat. And you may also see situations that we've talked about already with animals like cod, the Atlantic cod that Melanie mentioned, and sand tiger sharks that I mentioned earlier, being able to use these sites as um, stepping stones as these fish move across the ocean. That's very cool. And because I think we're sort of, you know, creeping in the direction of it anyway, um, one of the questions I usually ask to kind of close this out is, uh, you know, what's next for this research? What areas are most interesting and exciting to you? What things are you looking to look at in the future? Um, and what can we expect to see on the horizon for what you've been working on? Well, I think one of the main take-homes from this synthesis that our team did um, is that shipwreck ecology is this really exciting and emerging sub-discipline within the broader ecological sciences. And there is tremendous opportunity for collaborative research moving forward, not only with ecologists and archaeologists, but also including engineers, um, including social scientists, historians, um, and many more disciplines to try to keep moving this field forward. There's so many opportunities that it's really astounding when we think about changing climate conditions and we think about um, storms like Melanie mentioned before 
and how that may influence shipwrecks. Um, one of the things that I think about is not only how that might influence the, st the habitat structure, but the animals who've been using that structure over time. Um, one of, I think, the really compelling ideas that came out of our group of archaeologists and ecologists was what if we could use these shipwrecks as sentinel sites to track changes in marine communities over time. We have this almost random global distribution of shipwrecks that are these perfect experimental um, setups for us to understand and use as a barometer for what's changing in the ocean with marine life. Yeah, I, I think some of the projects that I've been a part of that have included the historians, the archaeologists have been some of the most enjoyable and richest projects that I've been a part of. And, and that's because of the way that we combine the, the technologies that we use to understand the location, the, the place that is the shipwreck, uh, but also understand the function, the, the tying together of of when uh, all the way from tying the shipwreck and, it, and its and its links to the maritime history of a coastal community to the to then the now the ecology and the resting place that is now being observed and enjoyed by by divers and fishers and by scientists uh, alike. Um, I think I think Avery is right. I think these uh, these places are sometimes very expensive to get to. Uh, the, the more that we can work together, uh, apply similar technologies and tools to be able to extract all these data streams from these sites are going to continue to help us tell the story about the importance of these shipwrecks, um, their relative habitat value to fish and the ecology, to their contributions to the ecosystem as we observe a changing climate, um, and their and their uh, function in, as part of the, our coastal ocean and our, and our world oceans. And I can add to that, uh, as an archaeologist who works primarily in the marine environment, a lot of what our research has focused on uh, in the previous decades is really looking at the sort of external influences on shipwrecks, and we call these site formation processes. So looking at deep water currents, um, looking at human activities, trawling, and, and all sorts of other external phenomena that are taking place and affecting the shipwrecks. And really what my research has kind of flipped that on its head over the last decade and looking instead at how the shipwreck influences the marine environment around it. And so with the research that we've done, looking at impacts from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we were able to demonstrate that you know, we can use these historic shipwrecks as ecosystem monitoring platforms to look at ecosystem recovery over time for long-term monitoring purposes to really understand what those long-term impacts are. But recently, I'm looking at them in sort of a different way, and Avery mentioned the word sentinel. And another way in which um, we're looking at shipwrecks as sentinels is for monitoring mudslide events. And this is occurring off the mouth of the Mississippi River in an area called the Mississippi River Delta Front. And BOEM is currently funding a study that is looking at uh, shipwrecks in this area that are actually being moved over time with mudslide events. And so this has been an excellent um, synergy between the archaeologists and the you know, coastal geomorphologists who are looking at slightly different phenomena offshore. And we're getting um, quite a bit of success with that. So I, I think looking at shipwrecks in new and exciting ways and you know, trying to develop more of these interdisciplinary studies, I think is really going to benefit all sides of science and also help the scientific community develop an appreciation for historic shipwrecks. And, and lastly, the one final point I want to make is that, you know, while biologists typically study natural resources, 
Um, historic shipwrecks are cultural resources and they are 100% non-renewable and every single site is unique. So hopefully as this research comes to light and more individuals within the scientific community um, start to understand how much we can learn about shipwrecks, I hope that there's sort of a collective um, feeling of wanting to help preserve these sites for the benefit of not just future generations, but future scientists as well. Great. I think that's an excellent note to leave it on. Um, I've learned a lot today. Thank you all very much for joining me and we'll have a lot of learning to look forward to in the future. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having us, James. Yeah, thanks for the time, James. Thank you, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.